now for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, five, or five. What's up, list nerds? I am your host, ex-video store clerk, undiscovered screenwriter, and fellow list nerd, Jason Kleberg, and this is Force 5, a show where I force my guests to come up with a movie-themed top five list topic, and then we talk about our picks on air. The film The 39 Steps, written and directed by Alfred Hitchcock in 1935, is widely regarded as the first spy film. Since then, spy films have become a favorite genre of many, with films that fit just about anybody's movie taste. There are comedies, hard-edged action films, slow-burn dramas, billion-dollar franchise blockbusters, foreign films, small indie spy films. You want it, you got it. And if you have a favorite actor, chances are they've been in a spy film at some point. Darren Lundberg from the Nostalgia Cast joined me this week to talk about five of our favorites. And we have a ton of varied spy films to fit just about any mood. I'm excited for you to hear our picks, but I also want to know what would be on your list. Now, last show I had Dan Kinnam from VH Shitfest on to talk top five films of 1990, the year 1990, not just the 1990s. And of course, the internet was quick to tell us what we missed. Not in the top five, did they get it right? Excuse my language. Okay. Hell no. (laughs) I can't believe. Who who made that list? Who made that? That's blasphemous. Don't look at me. That's blasphemous. Over on the Cinematics Facebook page, Eric Holmes said, Night of the Living Dead remakes, pretty rad. Ken Cunningham presumed innocent. William Crane said, Edward Scissorhands, and also Tremors. Matt Stillman said, Misery. Julian J. Howard, La Femme Nikita, yep on my honorable mentions. Bruce Perky, based on what I watched the most total recall, based on the movie that messed with my mind and stuck the landing, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. I totally forgot that was from 1990. Kind of makes me want to uh, go have a kielbasa at the moment. Dave Gulick and Sean Aguilar both said Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Michael Aragon, Robocop 2, Mitch Burns, Arachnophobia. And of course, there were a lot of plays for things that made our list, like Wild at Heart and Goodfellas. If you want to get in on the action, at Force5Pod on Twitter, at Force5Podcast on Instagram. I'm on the Cinematics Facebook page as myself. And if you want to send me a good old-fashioned email, it's Force5Podcast at gmail.com. For the review this week, I wasn't planning on reviewing this movie, but I was strolling through Amoeba Records over in San Francisco, and I came upon what I believed was a rarity, because I had never heard of this film before, I had never seen this film before. It's a 1998 crime neo-noir film adapted from James Elroy's first book called Brown's Requiem. You live in L.A. long enough, you realize nothing's confidential, and very few people are your friends. I started out in the LAPD, and I played the game for as long as I could, till it was time for me to say goodbye to the boys in blue and go into business on my own. That brings me to where I am today, Brown's Detective Agency, and that would make me Fritz Brown. I don't use a cell phone, I don't need a laptop, and my car is a 63 Ford. And that leaves me, my instincts, and a Colt 45. But as most of my friends know me well will tell you, that's usually more than enough. 
Now, James Elroy is a terrific crime novelist. He's probably best, I mean, he's definitely best known in the film world for the adaptation of his book, L.A. Confidential. It was nominated for nine Academy Awards in 1997, two of which it won, Best Supporting Actress for Kim Basinger and Best Adapted Screenplay. It was a smash hit, even spawning a pilot for a television series that, if picked up, would have starred Kiefer Sutherland in 2003. You can find the pilot on YouTube if you're curious. It's not that bad. L.A. Confidential was the second James Elroy book to get the big screen treatment. I think that Blood on the Moon, which was adapted under the title Cop, starring James Woods, was the first in 1988. But L.A. Confidential was so well received that in 1998, the year after that was released, a third book was adapted. This was an adaptation of Brown's Requiem, a book that was written in 1981. It was Elroy's first ever novel. Now, I have to believe that this was in production before L.A. Confidential released because from what I heard on the commentary... The director got the rights to this book pretty cheaply, and I guarantee that wouldn't have happened right after L.A. Confidential. Now, if you're a fan of detective films in CD towns, Fritz Brown here will feel like old hat. He's an alcoholic ex-cop. He works two jobs. He's a repo man during the day and a private investigator after he gets his daily car back to the dealership. One day, a guy named Fat Dog, yes, Fat Dog, walks into his office and presents Mr. Brown with a job. There's a rich old man who his 17-year-old sister has been hanging out with who's intentionally keeping her from contacting him. Seems simple enough, so Fritz Brown takes the job. Of course, as is the case in LA Confidential, there are a lot of people who are involved in what turns out to be a case filled with intrigue and murder. Corrupt politicians, ex-baseball players, and golf caddies are all involved, and when Fat Dog goes missing, Brown goes pulling up carpet that he probably shouldn't. When I first put this on, I couldn't help but think of how I missed a James Elroy adaptation because I had never heard of this until seeing it in, and I, it was weird. I saw it in the store. I saw it on Twitter, like around the same day. Somebody had posted the, the poster of it. But even the bad Elroy adaptations like Brian De Palma's Black Dahlia, I've at least heard of. As the film kicks off, we hear the 50s style noir self-narration by Brown, but it doesn't really work for a film set in the present. It goes through the paces, Brown finds a little resistance, and seems to put things together too quickly for us to feel like he's struggling with anything. His alcoholism, which we're told he's battling, even though he's willingly uh, sitting in bars left and right, doesn't really carry any consequences. And by the time he's figured out the mystery, he's told the audience, leaving nothing to the imagination at the end. Michael Rooker, who plays the lead character, is perfect for this role. His indifferent demeanor and gruff voice are tailor-made for a role like this, and I thought he was pretty good. Although there are some scenes where it kind of feels like he's sleepwalking. Will Sasso, who, uh, geez, in 1998, people probably would have known him from Mad TV. He plays Fat Dog, and he's got a limited amount of screen time. It almost feels like he's in a completely different film. The first time we see him, he snatches a fast food bag out of Fritz's hands without asking and starts devouring a cheeseburger. I guess because his character is fat and it's supposed to be played for laughs. I thought it might be a P.I. parody film based on that scene alone, but everything after that is kind of played straight. There are some supporting roles for some amazing character actors, but nothing that stands out about any of their performances. Selma Blair is here at the sister. She's This is probably one of her very first roles, and she barely has a line. The next year, in 1999, she would have gotten a bigger break in Cruel Intentions. Tobin Bell shows up here. He, of course, is pretty well known to horror fans. Brad Dourif, Kevin Corrigan, the amazing Brian James, even Christopher Maloney shows up in a blink-and-you'll-miss-it moment. The cast is fantastic, but they're hardly utilized. The film was directed by first-time director Jason Freeland, who also adapted the Elroy screenplay. He directed just one more film ten years later and then kind of disappeared. And I even looked for him online because I did have some questions, but as far as I can tell, he is unreachable. Maybe I should hire Fritz Brown. 
Over on Letterboxd, I gave this one two stars. While I liked Rooker and the music in the film, it lacked momentum and excitement, even when there were clear openings to pack a punch. For example, there's a moment midway through the film when Fritz finds a body, and in the process of moving it, a couple low-level hitmen come knocking. What we get is a quick moment of Fritz popping out and shooting them, absolutely drenched in slow motion, which tells me that either the scene didn't go as long as they wanted it to, or Jason Freeland didn't trust his audience to understand what happened at regular speed. It could have played out in a very suspenseful way, like what if Fritz had laid his gun on a table in a different room instead of having it down his pants? Everything in this movie just kind of seemed so easy for Fritz, even though they try to play him off as this bumbling detective. Even the ending has an eye-roll-worthy how-about-one-last-drink moment when Fritz has a gun to his head, and the bad guy delightfully agrees to it, giving Fritz a moment to pull out his piece. And that slow-motion crutch I mentioned earlier rears its ugly head in the final showdown as well. There's a close friend of Fritz's named Walt, played by Kevin Corrigan, who finds himself on the business end of a beating when thugs come looking for Fritz and find him instead. And the whole scenario is played like it's supposed to really tug at our heartstrings, but because the relationship is hardly built up and Rooker isn't really displaying the facade of a grief-stricken uncle, it felt kind of flat. All that being said, it is tough to recommend this film. If you are a James Elroy completionist, I'm guessing there are some out there, or just want something that tries its hardest to be LA Confidential's inferior 90s set clone, I'd steer clear of this one. Also, it's not super common. You might have to jump to eBay to snag this bad boy on DVD. It's not yet been released on Blu-ray, although if it were to make the jump, I have to imagine it would be from a company like Kino Lorber. I got mine for the bargain price of 4 bucks, but it seems like the going rate is between $25 and $40. The picture's okay, but anytime I watch a DVD on the OLED, they seem to lack bite and pop because I'm just so used to Blu-ray and 4K. Then again, some of that is the fault of the filmmakers, as the atmosphere of the whole film seems brown and bland and muddy. There are some cast and crew bios on here, the theatrical trailer, and the big surprise was a feature-length commentary with both the director Jason Freeland and Michael Rooker, and it was a good mix between the director talking about the challenges of making a first-time film and Michael Rooker really coming off as a pretty professional actor. A lot of the, the stuff that he said made you realize how much he cares about his roles, and he just seems like a really fun, fantastic guy to work with. The director and Michael Rooker had really great chemistry together on the commentary, so yeah, I mean, the commentary was actually pretty good. So that's Brown's Requiem. I want to know, have you heard of this film before I mentioned it? If so, how? Was it at your local video store? Did you see it in the theaters? If you did, that would be kind of special, I think, considering this made only $4,000 at the box office and was only shown in two theaters, I assume in Los Angeles, and that's it. Hit me up, let me know on social media, and tell me what you thought of Brown's Requiem. Speaking of books, today's show is brought to you by Joan Wilder's newest novel, Alpine Temptations, Shadows of the Sultry Coin. In Joan Wilder's newest novel, readers will be transported into a world where danger and desire intertwine. They will witness Jesse's unyielding resolve to untangle the enigma of the coin while succumbing to the intoxicating charms of Angelina and the various traps set by the evil Victor Kruger. Will Jesse succumb to temptation and passion, or can he rise above the treacherous allure of the coin's power? Prepare for an electrifying adventure that will leave readers breathless and horny. Lured by the tantalizing dance of love, lust, and danger amidst the alluring mystique of the Swiss Alps. That's Alpine Temptations, Shadows of the Sultry Coin, which you can find in bookstores now. Alright, let's talk five great spy films with Darren Lundberg from The Nostalgia Cast.
Welcome back to the Force 5 Podcast. My guest tonight is Darren Lundberg, co-host of the Nostalgia Cast, a show that examines older films to see if they stand the test of time or are past their prime. Darren, how are you tonight? I'm good, Jason. How are you? Thank you, thank you so much for having me on here. It's a, it's an honor. You've got like a, a whole roster of guests. And I'm like, I'm on with these people? Like you said, these people on? So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no shortage of, of great guests out there, including yourself. And you've got a, a lot of guests on your show as well. We've got a lot of cross-pollination. Jackson Boren yeah. uh, was a recent episode that I listened to. He was on your Speed episode. Yep, yep. I think you've got David Rosen on there. Yeah. You had him on. Talk about dogs? Is that what, Was that the episode? I've had him on twice. Yeah, we talked about oh. dogs once, and about two years before that, he was on to talk wow. uh, video game adaptations, oh. which was, yeah, a lot tougher than you might think. <laughs> yeah, those are tough to talk about. <laughs> well, uh, Darren, before we get into our topic tonight, when somebody switches over to the Nostalgia Cast after they listen here, what can they expect over on your feed? Well, Nostalgia Cast, again, it's me and my best childhood friend, John, and we're just, uh, we kind of, well, we met in junior high school, so I don't wow. know if that counts as growing up together. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> but, yes, but we kind of cut our teeth on movies together, and so during the 90s, that's when we bonded as friends, and uh, that's when we started watching a little bit of everything. So I started this uh you know, back in 2016, there was uh, the Lady Ghostbusters. I'm sorry if that sounds uh, uh, misogynistic to call it that, but it started. It kickstarted this whole thing with people like threatening the cast, like uh, you know, death threats were put out, stuff like that, and it just got in my mind that it's like nostalgia can be like really dangerous. It's like yeah, Ghostbusters is great, but there's no reason to like you know act that way towards these actresses who are just trying to do a job, right? And so you know, and then I was also thinking about kicking off a podcast is trying to find the correct hook and so that was it it was like well let's take a look at like old movies that we grew up with as kids and see if like we do get like defensive or uh possessive over these things right just to see how they are and then it's been a fun experience because we've got stuff like you know flash gordon or clash of the titans or uh the jazz singer was our opening episode one with neil diamond in it just you know movies that you you thought to find you as a kid, but then you haven't watched them in twenty years, and you know it's either a really different. Actually, they're always a, it, it's always a real difference. It just depends on what was I thinking, or wow, this is actually much better, and it's actually uh, you know developed with age, that kind of thing. So yeah, we started out doing like eighties <laughs> movies that nobody had ever heard of, and nobody ever bothered watching the movie when they were listening to the episodes, and then just this season, if you're going to switch over, we decided, Johnny had the bright idea, hey, let's just do 90s movies that we're nostalgic for, because that's when, again, we started watching everything and, and anything, and got addicted to movies, and the filmmaking, and directors, and writers, and all that, so just this season, we've been doing stuff like, uh, you know, Big Lebowski, and Fargo, and uh, Fight Club, and, uh, you know, other things, You've Got Mail, or The Rocketeer, or, or Goodfellas, We've got one coming up here. So just all these 90s that are, you know, that are great. And we've been having a great time just, you know, chatting about these. Instead of trying to find things to like about these movies, we actually have a, like a, you know, a plethora of things to say that we can't shut up about them. So that's, that's what we're, that's what we're up to right now. That's great. And there are so many childhood favorites on that feed, like, you know, some that you've probably not seen since they came out, listeners, Mrs. Doubtfire is one that I need to revisit after listening to your episode on. Darren, were there any films that you revisited that surprised you? Like maybe something that you didn't love when you originally saw it and ended up really liking when you were older or perhaps something that you were surprised didn't hold up as well as you thought it might? 
Well, a movie that surprised me that I really liked, and I think, you know, sometimes you watch movies at the wrong time, so they don't hit you in the right way. Um, Raising Arizona was one of those. I remember mm. uh, my my mom's uh, friend. So my mom would always work, and it was just her, and then it was just, I was an, I'm an only kid, and so she had friends that would take me to movies because she knew that would help me pass the time. So I remember my mom's friend took me to see Raising Arizona, again, maybe 10 11 years old and I just didn't get it like I thought it was really dumb and I didn't understand the humor and then you become a parent and your whole perspective on life not just movies but on life changes and so I decided you know I saw Raising Arizona in the five dollar bin at Walmart and was like well you haven't seen it let's let's see if it's any different and it was just I don't know it was like having my eyes open like uh, being a parent and having that movie be about parenting was just a brand new experience. And so now I'm in love with that movie. It's gone from maybe my least favorite Coen Brothers movie to my favorite Coen Brothers movie, just because every single scene just was centered around the theme of being a parent and like how to fail or how to succeed. And it was just, again, that's one of those things like you change over time. Your perspective changes. And that's, we when we hit on those things when we record from Nostalgia Cast, that's what the show is about. It's not just oh, you know, we watch Popeye and I still really like it a lot because it has the Robin Williams factor stuff like that. You watch something like you know Raising Arizona or even Fight Club. We did just recently, and I I was always on the fence about Fight Club and just the conversation that we had on it was so eye opening. Again, it was like wow, there's a lot of stuff going on here, and so it was just a fascinating conversation so you know nostalgia can be that dangerous thing where you kind of you know for Popeye or Transformers the movie I had a hard time I was like I can't tell if these are good or not you know what I mean like objectively because I'm still in love with these as much as I was as a kid but Raising Arizona was definitely a different whole different experience for me one more piece of nostalgia what are some of your favorite movies of all time just so my listeners have a bit of uh, grasp on your taste well, if anybody follows me on Twitter, you know that uh, my favorite movie of all time, sentimental favorite, I know it's not the best made movie of all time, it's made perfect for what it is, but that's Field of Dreams uh, from 1989. I've got a particular hang-up with fathers <laughs> and uh. father-son <laughs> stories, because my, um, like I said, I was an only child, and my dad died when I was two, and then my mom remarried, and so um, so Field of Dreams is obviously very big. I'm I really got addicted during the 90s to the old movies. So stuff like Citizen Kane I can look at and go, you know, this is, I, I think out of every movie, any movie ever made, Citizen Kane might be the most influential. Just everybody taking the lessons from it and the rules that it broke and everything. So that's another one that's up there. I love any film noir, like something that for our topic today, I was looking at The Third Man. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. movie, but I was like, oh, I don't know if that really fits our topic. That's more of a film noir type thing. But yeah, if you're looking at movies today, I think uh, let's see, what was one that really impressed? Uh, Spider Verse, obviously. I'm not huge on the comic book stuff, but I think just the animation, yeah, uh, for that movie was, and just it was able to, you know, give you the the feeling of what it's like to read a comic book where most live action stuff can't do that. I think animation is the perfect thing for that. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, it's hard because like there's so many masterpieces back in the day and now it's like everything's a copy of a copy. So it's hard to find those things, but you know, something like, uh, yeah, Spider-Verse is, is a big one. I'm kind of blanking on some, I know there's some others recently that I really, really, really loved, but, you know, just that, you kind of look for those differences or things that stand out these days. Those are, tend to be my favorite. Sure. Spider-Verse, uh, Across the Spider-Verse, like straight up masterpiece, in my opinion. 
Yeah, it's great. <laughs> well, speaking of masterpieces, I got a couple of masterpieces on my list today. I'm sure you do as well. What inspired the topic? We're talking about five great spy films. Why did you choose this topic? Well, I think something I think is interesting about Force Five is you you give your guests the at the topic to pick. You say you choose the five, and we'll talk about those. And so, whenever I hear that, it's like, well, I kind of want to make like the the podcast that I'm on like relevant. Like, how can I? What movies can I pick that'll tie in with what's going on in our world today? And so I thought, you know, you've got a, you know a new Mission Impossible that's coming out, and then uh, yeah, just I think the Born Identity. Uh, from 2002, it celebrated its birthday, what, 21st birthday? Just yesterday yeah, or today. 2002, yeah. Yeah, so that kind of, so I thought, well, let's kind of do maybe spy movies. I know, and it's not just, you know, the tie-in. It's also like my mom was really into, you know, Ludlum and really into James Bond. That's one of the things she introduced me to. And so I thought, yeah, I don't, I don't think I've ever gotten the chance to chat about spy movies or spy thrillers or just regular spy, you know, centric kind of films. So I thought that would be a fun topic to chat with you about. It was a really deep topic. I left a lot of really amazing spy films off my list. Some of them (laughs) I left off my list because I talked recently about them. I left off those three major franchises that you just talked about. I left off Mission Impossible, I left off Bourne, and I left off Bond just to, to give some shine to some other films. So hopefully you'll have something there on your list that we could talk about. If not, we'll touch on those in the honorable mentions. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Darren, you are the guest, so it is up to you whether you want to go first or second. Jason, why don't you go first? Let's, let's, let's start it off right. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Let's get into this list. You know what's going to happen? You know what's happening right now? I know what's going to happen. What? You just made the list. Five great spy movies. I'm going to start out with one that is all about the great fight scenes. This one delivers it is 2011's Haywire, directed by Steven Soderbergh. I have an assignment. She thought she was protecting our nation until she discovered the truth. You sold me out. Kill her. Go, go! Now. You need to turn yourself in. Do it for the sake of your father. The only way to survive is to find someone she can trust. One friend's not a lot. It depends on who it is. She's here. Isn't there someone you should be calling to bring help? I was looking at old reviews of this and Justin LaLiberty from Vinegar Syndrome, I think, put it really perfectly. He said, a decade on, and this may be Soderbergh's defining film of the 2010s, a deceptively simple yet shockingly layered espionage programmer that packs all of Soderbergh's stylistic flourishes and a stacked cast into 90 minutes. If nothing else, this is his Johnny Toe movie. If not due to the quick, brutal MMA bouts, then to the blunt moments of overall violence that disrupt the more banal sequences of character material or espionage convolution. You know, I'm going to get to Gina Carano in a second, but he mentioned the cast there. It's got a fantastic supporting cast. Michael Fassbender, Ewan McGregor, Bill Paxton, uh, Channing Tatum, Michael Douglas, and Antonio Banderas all make appearances. How? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, stacked. That's incredible. Yeah, geez. Absolutely stacked. And Gina Carano plays our main character here. And she is not a great actor. But I think in a role like this where she is very analytical, she's stoic and calculated and almost helps in a way. 
it, it kind of hides those acting deficiencies. Again, acting though, not the focus here, and the action scenes are what is on full display, and it is amazing. They are really realistic fights, and it's focused on this brutal nature of the encounters. This is not one of those movies that's filled with CGI explosions. And I'll just point you to one fight in a hotel room. If you've never seen Haywire and you're curious of what you're in for, just look up the hotel room fight on YouTube. I mean, light fixtures are being scraped off the walls. TVs are being broken. People are going through glass doors. It's <laughs> And it only lasts about a minute. But it feels yeah. longer because it's so damn brutal. And that's between uh, Fassbender and Gina Carano. I watched this movie recently, and it just made me sad, the wasted potential that we had with an action star. She had a history of dumb social media moves and then killed her, her own career by refusing to wear a mask during the height of COVID. But this yeah. really shows what we could have had if she played nicely with the Hollywood mandates. And uh, <laughs> highly recommend it if you like action films and the, the kind of espionage secret agent double-crossed kind of film this one delivers well it's kind of i guess it kind of helps her as an actress that she's more of an action figure right mm -hmm. i mean she's just there to do the physical things it's more impressive watching michael fassbender be able to to you know match her yeah uh, and then soderbergh that's that's interesting because that's him uh you know kind of branching out did he do you know off the top of your head because i know he shoots uh his own movies he's his own dp did he like choreograph everything and shoot everything i mean that's impressive if he did that i doubt that he did the choreography on it i don't know if he was the cinematographer on this or not i do know that gina carano did all of her own stunts which she of was course. adamant about doing wow yeah that's that's you, you wouldn't expect steven soderbergh director of sex lies and videotape to be able to do an action <laughs> movie and and make it you know you know born was very influential and i think that uh you know that definitely kind of uh, shows yeah, this is definitely one of those post-born swath of spy movies, and it's not the only one on my list. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and yes, I just looked it up. Cinematography was by Steven okay. Soderbergh. He credited himself as Peter Andrews, but it is him. Okay, so, but he so he at least knew how to shoot the action, so it wasn't like chop chop. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, like he was able to. So that's impressive. Good. Yeah, it's a good looking fight. All right, Darren, number five for you. Okay, well, <laughs> you, uh, you know, being able to put lists together, I know we've been chatting about that, and like, this is your life, right, Jason? Like, <laughs> putting together lists is you. Like, me, like, it's hard for me to put together because with me, like, a list will change. Like, I can zero focus and maybe, okay, I got to record this podcast and I'll, maybe I can keep this in my head for, you know, until we're done. And then it'll, it'll all refocus and rearrange itself. But to be able to put a list together like this, I didn't want to just do like, you know, my favorite to, I, I just kind of wanted, if I'm liking spy thrillers, I kind of want to give like a feel of everything. Yeah. So if somebody's listening to this, it's like, well, here's a, here's a little bit of everything. So you kind of know what spy things are. So the one that I started with, the first one that came to my head, actually, and we talked about this is like, are we doing spy thrillers or just spy movies? Because if we're doing spy thrillers, we can't do this one. But <laughs> I, I guess we've settled on, you know, being spy movies. This is a spoof of spy movies. Um, it's, it's top secret from 1984. Nick. I want to explain. What's there to explain? But I just want Look, to say that... I'm not the first guy who fell in love with a girl he met in a restaurant who then turned out to be the daughter of a kidnapped scientist, only to lose her to a childhood lover who she'd last seen on a deserted island and who turned out 15 years later to be the leader of the French underground. I know. It, it all sounds like some bad movie. Have you seen Top Secret, Jason? I have. I love it. I thought you were going yeah. in a different direction when you mentioned comedy. This is way better <laughs> than what I thought you were going to pick. What did you think I was going to pick? Just have... 
just out of curiosity. I thought you were going to pick Austin Powers, which is great, uh, but not yeah. as good as Top Secret. No, not as good. So the thing with Top Secret, it's, you know, it's the Zaz team, right? It's Zucker, Abrams, Zucker. So they're the guys that did Airplane. They're the guys that did Naked Gun. And so, you know, those are all great and they're all funny in their own ways. But I didn't quite jibe as much with like Airport or the Airplane movies that Airplane is, is spoofing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, again, growing up and being a, in a household where my mom always had a Ludlum book lying around, it's like spy stuff is my thing, right? I mean, that's, and James Bond, that's my thing. So just, <laughs> this is a movie that has the skeleton of a regular spy thriller. You know, it's got the, you know, Nick Rivers, he's the American kind of Elvis type Val Kilmer in the movie, and he's kind of uh, uh, hired to, to play a part in this resistance to fight against the Nazis over in Germany during World War II. And it's just got all the... The expected, you know, Zaz comedy stuff, like it's got a fight that takes place underwater. You have to see it to, <laughs> to believe it. There's, uh, you know, different shots of one of my favorite things. You see Kilmer and his uh, team, they're, they're walking on a field and you can hear their feet crunching on the leaves. And then they realize they're making too much noise. So Kilmer turns to everybody else and goes, shh. And then they keep walking, but the sound is is off. <laughs> so yeah, they, they, you don't hear them crunching. It's just, it plays with, you know, the sound stuff and all that. And then my favorite has to be there's a scene because there's a joke that Swedish just sounds like American backwards. And they play this scene like he and uh, he has a, a let's see, he has a, a girlfriend or whatever, like a, a love interest, Hillary, I believe, a Lucy Gutteridge character. But they, they go to visit this, uh, this scientist played by uh, Peter Cushing. And it's just a normal cut. You think they're just talking in Swedish. And then all of a sudden, weird things start happening. Like Kilmer's able to throw books up onto a shelf, like from like four shelves up he's able just and it lands perfectly uh and it it slowly gives away the joke that it that is being played backwards because at the end they walk and they slide up a fireman's pole instead so i i guess what they did is they shot the whole thing and then in backwards and then ran it forwards so it's just oh my gosh like that's one of the funniest things i've ever seen right and it's the whole movie is just loaded with stuff like that so yeah you can love airplane you can love naked gun you could love hot shots i think they even did some of the scary movies it just depends on what your you know where your uh your 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 fascinations lie but yeah top secret is one that uh since it's the spy stuff that just that's my sweet spot for humor right there i thought it was a nice kind of send up of spy thrillers yeah there's not many great spoof movies anymore and no. these were truly in the 80s just a, a in a league of their own top secret and airplane are two of really the funniest movies i've ever seen <laughs> and val kill i mean any Val Kilmer is good Val Kilmer, but Val Kilmer yeah. doesn't get a lot of credit for how funny he could be because he oh, was a man. really great actor. But in comedic right. roles, he was fantastic. You know, I always say that rascally Val Kilmer is the best Val Kilmer, you know, from mm-hmm. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, all those things. And it's yeah. just, yeah, he's so <laughs> this is at the start of his career, too. I think this is even, yeah, this is two years before Top Gun. It was, yeah, 84. I think Real Genius came out the year after this. And so he was kind of just starting off in his career. And yeah, he really had the comedic chops. And I guess a lot of directors just didn't want to uh, kind of take advantage of that. Yeah, wow. And now that I think of it, there's a Val Kilmer movie that probably could have been on my list. All right, well, good one. Uh, So we've got a a traditional action movie on, on my list. You've got a comedy on your list. How about we go to a coming of age tale? For a 16-year-old girl in my next pick, which is also a brilliant spy thriller, 2011's Hannah. You're dead. I've killed you. You must always be ready. Papa. Remember what I told you? Adapt or die. Go, go, go! 
She's a rogue asset. The target escaped. And I won't stop until you're dead. Where she is. Marissa Vickler. It's over now. Sometimes children are bad people, too. Ready PG-13. Are you familiar with Hannah? I haven't seen it. Isn't uh, Eric Bana in it? He is, yeah. Yeah, okay. So it's on my list. I just haven't been able to see it yet. Well, let me sell you on Hannah. Okay. This is uh, a film that starts off with this girl, Hannah. Like I said, she's 16, and her father, Eric, is uh, Eric Bana's character. And they're just hanging out in the Norwegian wilderness. They appear to be survivalists. Yeah. But we soon learn... As you see the training she's going through, that he's been training her to be an elite spy, an assassin. Because of this, from birth, she has learned how to fight. She knows all these different languages. She knows survival skills. She's been trained in spycraft. And they basically have a little training montage where he's hunting her through the wilderness. And the, the whole thing of it is he's got this homing beacon that has been dormant for many years. And he's decided that when she's ready, he's going to flip the switch on this homing beacon and the CIA is going to come for her. That's all he says. And when she's ready, she flicks that switch and she says, come and get me. And it turns out his daughter's mission is to kill a CIA target named Marissa, played by Kate Blanchett. Mm. That, that's kind of the setup for this. And of course, the, you know, what I'm talking about happens in the first 20 minutes and then things go off the rails from there. But after the Bourne movies, like we talked about, there were a lot of these who am I kind of spy thrillers coming out. And I think that Hannah is one of the best. It was directed by Joe Wright, yeah. who we talked about Soderbergh not really being known for action movies. Joe Wright was doing stuff like Atonement and Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. <laughs> and he comes out with uh, <laughs> Hannah, played by Shorsa Ronan, and she's fantastic in this. Right. The soundtrack is really good. The action is really good, too. Don't let the PG-13 rating put you off this movie. It's one of those action movies that does not feel PG-13. There's just some really, really crisp action scenes in here. There's one action scene that takes place in a subway station. It only lasts about 30 seconds, but it's really, really cool. It's all done in one take as the yeah. camera rotates around. So you've seen this scene? I've, I, I've seen this clip on YouTube. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. That's an incredible shot, incredible scene. It's really good. Eric Bann is being attacked in this subway station and all one shot rotating around him as he beats the crap out of these guys. So I highly recommend Hannah from 2011. I have not yet watched the TV show. This has been turned into a TV show. I think it's on Amazon Prime. And it's the first of two on my list that have been turned into TV shows. So he went like Anna Karenina Tono, and they just recently did Cyrano, but he has yeah. this movie in the middle there. That's incredible. And it's really good. I really wish he would do more action movies. Yeah. I mean, if you have the chops for it, like, why not? I guess it's just maybe he got out of his system or something. I don't know, but that would be <laughs> something I'd sign up for. I'm, yeah, I'll move that up on my list, Jason. <laughs> I apologize. I haven't seen it yet. Highly recommended. Okay, so we're kind of, again, my list is kind of geared toward a certain way. So the next one is is also kind of a spoof. Um, and it's, this is what I'm talking about when I say that it's not, I don't have my list according to like the greatest movies ever, because I think a lot of people would probably have this higher on their list. I just had like a, my list is kind of geared towards something, but the next one I have is North by Northwest. I have just made a motion picture North by Northwest to show you some of these delights and the ideal place to start our holiday fun trip is New York where Cary Grant can go places and do things. 
You don't find a tasteful little murder on every guided tour, now do you? But this means we must leave Manhattan. Hello there. Tell me, why are you so good to me? Shall I climb up and tell you why? How do I know you aren't a murderer? You don't. Uh, from 1959. It's a it's a Hitchcock. I know when this the spy thrillers first started out. You know Hitchcock was one of the proponents of that uh, with the 39 Steps, Lady Vanishes, uh, Man Who Knew Too Much. So he's got a whole bunch of kind of spy centric thrillers peppered throughout the 30s and 40s and 50s. But I think North by Northwest might be maybe if it's not his most famous, like one of his three most famous, because it's obviously got the crop dusting scene, you know, Cary Grant, even Marie St. Martin Landau, it's got them running around and doing cool spy stuff, things like that. But the thing that's um, interesting about North by Northwest, which a lot of people uh, don't, uh, don't realize is that it, it was a precursor to James Bond. Like James Bond was in the thing. I think that uh, Ian Fleming had been writing some of his novels uh, but they hadn't yet turned them into movies yet. And so when they put this uh, movie together, it was Hitchcock. He had a, a, an action set piece in mind, like the, the end fight on Mount Rushmore. And he told his screenwriter, I think Ernest Lehman, to, you know what, I, I've always wanted to do this. How about this action scene? Let's build a movie around it and see what we can do. And so Lehman was kind of interested by that. And so you watch it, and there's a lot of the... Um, like the staples of James Bond movies. So you've got like, you know, the, the, the femme fatale type, you've got the, you know, the, the exotic locations, that kind of thing. I guess you could say like, I don't know if Washington DC is an exotic location, but you know, it, <laughs> it has is for all some. the, yeah, it has the tongue in cheek humor. There are literally parts where Grant introduces himself as Thornhill, Roger Thornhill. Right. And so, I think when they the movie became such a hit, that's when they went to Ian Fleming and said, you know, if you're going to be turning your books into movies, I think this is kind of the attitude that you want to have. But obviously, it's Hitchcock, so it's got that whole suspense thing. Cary Grant, I don't, I don't know if he's ever been, you know, more charming in a movie. Maybe Charade, which is another spy movie. But yeah, North by Northwest. I know most people have seen it, and like I said, even that uh, the crop dusting sequence was kind of ported over in from Russia with Love. Yeah, uh, maybe five years later. Um, so, and there's a lot of similarities there. So it's it's just fascinating. We all know North by Northwest, but I don't know if a lot of people realize that it is a James Bond. Movie. It was spoofing James Bond before James Bond was even a thing. You should absolutely go out and check out North by Northwest. It's your classic. Well, now we call it classic. Back then, it probably <laughs> wasn't, but your classic right. mistaken identity yeah. thing, where you know they got the wrong guy and he has to try and get away. Everybody okay. has seen the crop dusting scene, but there's so much more to this movie. It's really fantastic. It's one of those movies, I think. And sorry if this sounds snobbish, but if you're going to consider yourself like a film connoisseur, like you have to, North by Northwest is one of those movies you have to have in your brain before yeah. you can consider yourself <laughs> on that level of uh, like a film watcher. Sure, yeah. Nominated for three Oscars. Um, did not win any Oscars, but nominated for three. All right, my number three here is the newest on my list. This one I haven't heard anybody talk about, so I'm hoping to introduce some folks to this one. It is a South Korean film called Hunt from 2022. Are you familiar with this movie? Have you heard of it before? I have not. This is fascinating. I really wanted to get a foreign movie on my list, and yeah. there was one that was an obvious choice, but I had just talked about it, so it's in my honorable mentions, and there were two vying for this spot. I have one in my honorable mentions that I'll talk about later, but Hunt is set in South Korea in the 1980s. Military dictatorship has reached its peak, 
and the South Korean Agency for National Security. Uh, there's two guys that we focus on, Foreign Unit Chief Park and Domestic Unit Chief Kim. And they're informed that there's a North Korean mole in their organization. So at first they team up, both of their squads come together to find out who it is, and then they fail. And because of that, they take separate routes with their own teams, which leads to both teams investigating each other. So this stars Lee Jung-jae, who I think most people will know from Squid Game. He's the main character in Squid Game. Okay. But for... South Korean audiences, they are very familiar with him. He's been in two of the top 10 grossing South Korean films of all time, a film called Assassination. And then he's been in the Along with the Gods series, which I think there's two of those. And they're both among the top. One is like the third grossing film in South Korean history and the other is like 12th on the list. So this dude is well known in South Korea. In this film, he wrote, directed, produced, and starred. He plays opposite Jung Woo Sung, who most people would know from The Good, The Bad, and The Weird. He played the good in that one. <laughs> and then also in the cast, Jian Hai Jin and Hyo Sung Tae. So this film is really, really twisty narratively. It's got a lot of... Um, it's got a lot of false flags. It's got a lot of red herrings. It's really twisty. But the performances and the action more than make up for whatever confusion comes from the script. It's a really exciting, really energetic film. The film starts off with an attempted assassination on a South Korean president. And it takes place in a hotel. These guys storm this hotel room. There's a chase scene. There's a shootout. It's very bloody. It's very exciting. A grenade goes off in the hotel, causing more carnage. It's crazy. And then later on, you get a, a, a heat-like shootout in the middle of the street as this car overturns, and there are clear nods to heat. One of the characters almost does the exact Val Kilmer move uh-huh. with his uh, machine gun as he's shooting both forwards and backwards. There's so much in here. There's interrogations, torture, you know, the whole sensitive information in the briefcase scene, assassinations. It's got it all. The final scene in this is so explosive. It's a, a really great shootout. It uh, it never lets up. I really, really highly recommend Hunt from 2022. Yes, you're going to have to put the subtitles on. <sighs> deal with it. It's well worth it. Yeah. It's on Blu-ray right now, and I think list price is like 15 bucks. So you could probably find it under $15, but it's a fantastic spy movie. Highly recommend Hunt. Oh, that's high on my list now. That's fascinating. Yeah. Did So... Yeah, it's it's funny that you talk about subtitles and it's it's you know it's 2023 and it's funny that people still kind of push back and that kind of thing but it's like you mm-hmm. know you can't you know you can't shut yourself off from these experiences just because it's in a different language like there's so many fascinating different filmmaking styles and and narratives that are that are out there that uh, you know you need to some people need to broaden their horizons and be, to be able to you know kind of absorb those things but you know if you I think a good a good way to kind of override those subtitles is to watch a, a, a good spy thriller. So, yeah, that sounds fascinating. It's a really exciting movie. The action is so well done. I'm really excited for what he directs next because he's only getting better. Yeah, that's always cool when you can find a new kind of voice and want to follow them anywhere. Yeah, and unlike a lot of South Korean films, this one feels like they were actually using squibs. It does not look like CGI blood, which a lot of stuff I've seen over there recently... There's a lot of CGI blood, and it didn't feel like that in this one. So either it was really well done, or they went really old school with the effects. (laughs) Wow, okay. Yeah, Hunt at number three. Number three for you. 
Okay, well, if we're doing, so we went from a comedy uh, spoof to a, like another kind of lighter spoof. And then obviously if you're going to spoof James Bond before James Bond was even James Bond, we might as well just do a James Bond movie. <laughs> uh, again, it's like, and I know uh, this is cool, Jason, because our list, I love that you did a foreign movie. I love that we're covering, you know, have a Joe Wright movie in there we're covering like i said the breadth of everything instead of just you know one particular thing but you know looking at it i was like well you know i obviously want to do like these 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 franchises that mean a lot to me because these franchises are they have some a lot of good stuff in it some more than others and so if you're looking at the whole history of james bond i could choose from russia with love i could choose spy who loved me i could choose goldeneye that kind of thing but the thing with james bond movies is that there's not a lot of how do I say, like like visual storytelling. James Bond movies are mostly like, oh, let's shoot an exotic locale. Let's shoot an exotic looking woman. Let's shoot an exotic looking woman wearing hardly any clothes. Let's, you know, <laughs> let's, let's shoot James, you know, James or Sean Connery or Roger Moore or Timothy Dalton smoking a cigarette. It's like, it's just mostly point and shoot stuff, which is fine because that's what you go to movies for, escapist things. And so the movie that I'm going to pick, and it's actually my favorite James Bond movie, it's going to be Skyfall from oh, okay. 2012. James Bond. Skyfall. Really BG-13. Again, you could pick the, that whole history of James Bond, but I, I really just vibed with Skyfall because there is a lot of visual storytelling. I like to say that Skyfall works like an actual movie, <laughs> where most James Bond movies just work like James Bond movies. And uh, just a couple examples of this, like three examples. Like the first shot in Skyfall, they don't do the uh, the gun barrel sequence, but they do this thing where you have like a hallway that's kind of blurred, and then you see a figure step into frame, and you hear the James Bond theme kind of blast on the soundtrack. But it's blurry, so you, obviously you know who it is. But then the the figure, the silhouetted figure, walks toward the camera and becomes more in focus the closer that he gets until it's a close-up of his face, and then you just get a lighted shot of his eyes that is just very clear. And what I always thought seeing that shot was like, oh, this is... a immediately is like, oh, this is going to be a story of bringing James Bond into focus, right? Like, James Bond movies aren't really, you know, he starts at the same place that he ends, right? There's no real arc. It's just he shows up, he sleeps with some women, he shoots the bad guy, he drives his car, shoots some rockets or whatever, and then that's it. But Skyfall is interesting because it actually is telling a story. Obviously, if anybody knows Skyfall, you know, this whole mission that starts off, like he gets shot and ends up in the water, and then he has to kind of fight his way back in MI6. And while this is happening, M, played by Judy Dench, is targeted by, I believe he's a, we'll call him a terrorist, the Javier Bardem uh, villain, Silva, who's, man, who's probably the, the villain. I think he's just having so much fun. Yeah. But then it's the story of James Bond kind of coming back and all this, and it ends with, you know, he goes to his uh, childhood home. A lot of people compare it to Home Alone. It's not really what it is. It's more Rio Bravo, that kind of thing. But it's the whole movie's about breaking James Bond down and building him back up. So you visit all these things with James Bond of his past, and you find he's an orphan, but then he builds himself after, you know, deconstructing. And then comes back and he's built um, uh, full. So that first shot tells you that. But another thing that's cool is later Silva's introduction is the same almost exact shot. You have Bond that's like tied to a chair and he's in the middle of his room with all these computers. And then you see Silva come down in an elevator. It's just the shot of Bardem coming off the elevator and he gives this insane monologue about mice. 
right? <laughs> but again, <laughs> what he does, yeah, he what he does, which is cool because you're listening to that. But Silva comes into focus, and so it's matching the shot from the beginning to say, oh, these two are basically brothers, which is technically what they are because M kind of raised both of them in MI6, right? So that's cool visuals. Uh, it's also a self-reflective James Bond. So there, there's at least three sequences in the movie where you see uh, Daniel Craig's Bond looking at himself in a mirror. Uh, at the beginning, you see him in a bar before he decides to go back to London. He's looking at himself in a mirror, deciding to go. Later, when he's being kind of brought back into the fold and he's kind of training, retraining his body, he looks in a mirror to remove, like, the bullet that was still lodged in his shoulder. And then at the end, when Bond goes to his childhood home, he uncovers a mirror, and there's literally a shot where he stares at himself for a good 10 seconds. So, again, it's a self-reflective Bond. But... My favorite thing of visual storytelling, and I can't believe this is in a Bond movie, but when you first see uh, Bond visit with Q, um, they're in a, a museum, right? And this is where you find the, uh, what the, the, is a younger kind of Q. It's uh, Ben Wishaw. But uh, they kind of meet, and there's a, they're sitting in front of a painting. And the painting is of this uh, this ship. It's the, uh, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, it's the Tame Rare. Um, but the painting that they're sitting in front of is a just a famous uh, painting. I think it's called the Fighting Tame Rare. Um, and it basically shows the ship that's basically at the end and it's being kind of towed in. It's at the end of its legs. So when you see this painting in this museum, it's Bond and Q talking and they're talking about, well, you're kind of out of practice and you're kind of old hat and, you know, the world has left you behind. The painting is commenting on Bond, right? Mm. And then, so I thought that was cool. But in the end, you know, when Bond goes to the whole thing and with M and everything and they defeat Silva and he goes back and it turns out that Ray Fiennes is the new uh, Q and he goes into Q's office and now there's a shot of Q and Bond talking to each other and there's another painting in the background it's interesting it's of some battleships and people think that it's a it's a Thomas Butters, Buttersworth uh, painting it's called uh, I think HMS uh, Victory Heavily Engaged at the Battle of Trafalgar and you actually see that same ship from the painting before the Tame Rare in full battle stance. It's fighting along with these other ships. It's like in full power, right? And that, again, is commenting on Bond. He's back, right? He's back at full power. And so it's just all these things that are just hidden in the background that don't usually show up in a Bond movie. I just thought that was fascinating that Sam Mendes is able to sit down and introduce all these visual kind of cues to also comment on the story instead of just the story you know, being a story. Does that make sense? So, I don't know. I, it has all the the staples that you expect from a Bond movie, but I just thought that it, it went that extra level. I get, I get so excited talking about this movie just because, <laughs> again, it's not a point-and-shoot thing. I just, I just think it's great. Yeah, that's the beauty of having a really great visual director like Sam Mendes come on board. Yeah. I have not seen Skyfall since it came out. I remember watching it in theaters and really liking it, but I still don't know to this day whether I really liked it because I had just watched Quantum of Solace to refresh <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or if it was That's a really great movie. So right, I, need, right. <laughs> I need to check it out again. I do remember his uh, his like dentures scene. Oh, yeah. Yep. Just he had horrifying. the cyanide that, that melted his face but didn't kill him. <laughs> Yeah, uh, he's, yeah, and he's having Bardem is having so much fun. I think it's just, uh, you know, it, it's he's so fun to watch in there. And yeah, the movie has, 
I think it suffers from what I call the Dark Knight syndrome, where, you know, Silva kind of works like the Joker, where he, you know, he has the whole thing where he plans on being captured. But he has these insane, this insane, like, 80-step plan that needs to be, like, planned down to the second so that a train barely misses. But So it has that, it has that, that kind of silly plotting. But, you know, we all make excuses for James Bond movies, so. Is Daniel Craig your favorite Bond? Wow, we'd have to do a whole separate episode here. Like, growing up, like, when I grew up, Roger Moore was my James Bond, because those are the Mm. movies that my mom first brought me to. I think Figure Eyes Only was my first movie I ever saw in a theater. So I loved Roger Moore. And he, you know, as a kid, you laugh at all his, the goofy antics, right? But then I started reading the Fleming books and realized that Roger Moore is so far from what I think James Bond actually was supposed to be that Roger Moore has really fallen in my estimation. I think Timothy Dalton was the first guy, even more than Connery, I think Timothy Dalton really nails the world-weary, kind of gruff, uh, rough-and-tumble James Bond. So I don't. It, I think for me it's a toss-up between Dalton and Craig just because they match the books most closely. I haven't read the books. I, I really do like Daniel Craig as Bond, he, I think those movies are the most entertaining ones. Casino Royale is my favorite, but I also love, yeah. uh, I, I really like the newest one, No Time to Die. And like I said, yeah. I liked Skyfall. But my favorite Bond might be Pierce Brosnan, just because I grew up with Goldeneye. And yeah. if you want to hear my ramblings on Goldeneye, I was on Select <laughs> and Start podcast to talk about the video game. And we talked about the movie quite a bit, but... Ooh. Okay, I'll mark that down. <laughs> I've slowly been working my way through the Bond set. I got the whole Bond 50 set, which has like all 26 or 27 movies or whatever. Yeah. So I've been working my way through that. Have you been watching the Roger Moore ones yet? Have you? I've seen Roger Moore ones before. I Like you, I, I didn't, well, I didn't grow up with those movies, but I remember catching them when they were on TNT or TBS because I was <laughs> right. into action movies and, and I knew the name James Bond. So I saw a lot of the, the older ones. I don't know if I've ever seen George Lazenby's film. Yeah. I'm forgetting off the top which one he was in. But... On Her Majesty's Secret Service, right? Ah, yeah, I haven't seen that one. Yeah, that one was... Uh... You have to, I think you have to watch them in order because I think when Sean Connery did it, like you look at Dr. No and you look at From Russia with Love and they were good, you know, quality spy thrillers, kind of uh, straightforward stuff. And then you hit like Goldfinger and they start to become kind of parodies of themselves, but that's when they started really hitting their their stride and being a franchise uh, in itself where they have to hit all the requisite beats and stuff like that. So by the time On Her Majesty's Secret Service came along, James Bond had become kind of a silly series and it righted the ship to the point where people didn't like it they hated that one because it wasn't connery because it kind of ends on a downer because it's a more human not as cartoonish bond so yeah i'll be watching uh, your twitter feed to see uh, what you think about her majesty's secret service when you get around to it. <laughs> yeah i'll let you know when i watch that <laughs> Well, I th- yeah, I thought we would get some of the James Bond talk out of the way here because obviously the Bond series is not on my list. It's one of those yeah. really huge spy franchises that I left off. But if I was to pick one, Casino Royale would have been on. Well, I don't know. Casino Royale or Goldeneye would have been a, an internal struggle for sure. <laughs> not bad choices. Okay, well, uh, my number two here is kind of goofy like those old Bond movies, but I had a real tough time deciding what was going to be number one and what was going to be number two because both of my one and two could easily be at the top spot and the criteria that i landed on was that one of them has been number one on two different lists already in the past not for a while but in the past so 
This one got knocked down to number two because of that. It is 1994's True Lies. For 15 years, Harry Tasker's been leading a double life. Hi, it's Helen. Is he in? Harry's in a sales meeting, Mrs. Tasker. He's protected the country. He's faced the enemy. But when his wife finds out... Harry! Who's going to protect him? Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jamie Lee Curtis, in a James Cameron film. What can I say? I'm a spy. True Lies. Rated R. Starts Friday, July 15th at theaters everywhere. Yeah. Love True Lies. <laughs> it was number one on my movies that are not yet available on Blu-ray. And it was also number one on top five remakes because this is a remake of a right. French film called La Totale or The Jackpot from 1991. It is a surprisingly faithful remake. I think really I watched La Totale not too long before I did one of those. I think it wow. probably was the remix one. And I think really the only major difference was the gender of Tasker's kid. Oh, interesting. Okay. So Arnold Schwarzenegger stars as Harry Tasker. He's a boring corporate computer salesman, but he has a secret like most spies do. When he's <laughs> going to work, he's not selling computers. He's going to work for the U.S. government as an elite special agent. And he is on the trail of stolen nuclear weapons that are in the hands of fanatic terrorists. But while he's in the process, he finds his wife is seeing another man named Simon because she needs some adventure in her life, not knowing that her <laughs> husband is continuously going on adventures. This is the perfect action comedy right here. It has great performances all around, great action. You're going to laugh out loud. Arnold and, and uh, Tom Arnold have some amazing interplay. <laughs> like the, the chemistry between those two guys as partners is awesome. Jamie Lee Curtis is always fantastic, and here she's great as this clueless wife who gets pulled into international intrigue. You know, I had to have Bill Paxton on my list twice. Like I said, he was in <laughs> Haywire, but goddamn, he steals the show yeah. as Simon, this sleazy car salesman who's pretending to have a double life as a spy. And then when his fake spy life and Arnold's real spy life collide, <laughs> it is some of the funniest stuff in the 90s. In terms of favorite scenes, shoot, I, I can't even pick one. There's so many of them. There's a great sequence on the Seven Mile Bridge yeah. featuring rocket-toting terrorists. And even in those scenes, there's so much comedy in the action. Like, I remember one of the guys loads the rocket launcher and shoots it from the back of the <laughs> truck, but because of the back blow of the rocket launcher, one of the guys flies out the window the other direction and gets smashed by the truck. Yep, yep. There's um, probably the only horse versus motorcycle chase in cinematic <laughs> history, which goes from the streets into a hotel building. And I just, I love Arnold as an underrated comedic actor. I think he's really, really funny because he's so charismatic. And because he's not afraid to make a fool out of himself, he's, he's really, really good in comedies. And this is the second one that has been made into a TV show. I had hinted that another one was going to come up on my list that was made yeah. into a TV show. There was a True Lies TV show, which I have not yet seen. And they just canceled it, I think, after one oh, season. Oh, did they? Yeah. I wondered, it's like, how are they going to keep that going for a whole season? Like, is, is the Tasker character going to keep it a secret from Helen, like, the entire first season? Like, how are they, <laughs> you know what I mean? It would, so it would be interesting to watch. Yeah, I guess so. Now, like I said, this was on my list of uh, top five films that are not yet on Blu-ray. And apparently, I mean, Cameron has been talking about it for a really long time because he likes to do all the supervision on 
any restorations and he's been so busy with the Avatar series that he's just not put time into it. But uh, on the digital bits, they had an interview with producer John Landau, and he said that True Lies and The Abyss yeah. are remastered and are coming in 2023. Yeah, that's good. I, out of all the movies, and we just talked, we did a Terminator 2 episode. So we talked about oh, our favorite sweet. Cameron movies. We kind of went through his uh, filmography. The Abyss is my number one James Cameron. Mm-hmm. And it's strange because I think The Abyss, as, as great as True Lies is, I think The Abyss kind of shares something with True Lies because it seems like they're two movies combined into one. Uh, and they try to kind of play off each other. The Abyss kind of has a tougher time of it. But the human stuff between Ed Harris and Mary Elizabeth Mastrantoni and The Abyss is just so unlike anything. Because I think Cameron gets criticized for having some really janky dialogue, right? <laughs> sure. But the performances and the dialogue between those characters in The Abyss is so great that it kind of transcends everything else. And they feel like real people. But, you know, you look at True Lies and it's... His Cameron's gifts for for action are just off the charts, unearthly, and like I said, even though like some of the comedy stuff doesn't quite mesh. Well, so you've got the the whole plot with the, the wife, you know, and finding out about this stuff, and then you've got the main action stuff. I think the action and the uh, speaking of Tom Arnold, I just remember them because when by the time that made this movie, like he had just gotten divorced from Roseanne Barr. Yep. And during previews when they showed the movie, when Tom Arnold's name came up, there was a report that everybody booed him. Like they booed the name. Oh wow. But then by the end, like you were saying, their chemistry is so good and Tom Arnold does such a good job that when they wrote on their index cards what their favorite part of the movie was, like I think 90% wrote Tom Arnold was their favorite part of the He's, He's that so good. Movie. But it, it you talked about Arnold's comedy chops. I think um, we said this just recently. There's a difference between James Cameron directing Arnold Schwarzenegger and Joel Schumacher directing Arnold Schwarzenegger because Cameron knows Schwarzenegger's strengths, knows when to pull him back, knows how much to let him do. But you have Schumacher as, you know, directing Schwarzenegger's Mr. Freeze, and it's a whole different story, right? I don't think Schwarzenegger's funny at all or even tolerable in, the, no, in Batman and Robin. Absolutely not. But, you know, you talked about the part where he's on the horse and he's, like, apologizing to everybody. Like, excuse me, sorry, as he's he's riding past these people. He's so fun. And the scenes where he finds out that Helen is cheating on him. There's a shot where Helen is just flat out lying about her day and the camera pushes in on Schwarzenegger. (laughs) And you can see his jaw tensing up. Oh, he's so, he's so good. It's so funny. And the Bill Paxton, I don't want to ruin it for anybody that hasn't seen it, but there's a part. And I don't know, Jason, if, if you've caught this, but it cuts to them in, in his, his uh, mobile home or whatever, and they, they clink glasses together like they cheers, but they're plastic cups. <laughs> <laughs> they're plastic representations of champagne. And that always makes me laugh. I don't think a lot of people miss it. It's just, but yeah, I mean, you've got the, the bridge scene. Uh, you've got the Harrier jet sequence. Holy cow. Yeah, that stuff's amazing. Oh my gosh! So yeah, if you haven't seen True Lies yet, you're you're missing some really, really great action. That's again unearthly. And because it's James Cameron, a lot of that action was at a time when they were starting to get into CGI action. All of his stuff. Well, I I can't say all, but most of it is done practically. Yeah. If you watch the DVD, they have a little, you know, thirty minute press kit thing on the making of this movie and you can see all the shots that they're doing practically. And that's why it holds up so well. It was the first movie ever to cost over a hundred million dollars to make. And it all shows on screen. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. I think when you do stuff and Terminator two is the same thing, right? They, a lot of stuff in there is practical and they use the, 
T-1000 very sparingly. So I wish more filmmakers would learn that that's, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. that's a good selling point for your movies if you want them to stand the test of time. So a Jurassic Park looks so good still oh, today. Absolutely. All right. Two left here for you. One for me. We have not crossed over at all so far. <laughs> And uh, I'm guessing we won't because uh, these next yeah. two are franchises that you didn't want to talk about. But but again, that's great. I, I think it's good that we're both having a representation here. But if you're talking about offshoots of James Bond, and you know, and there was a point during one of these movies in this franchise where I was watching, me and my wife were watching the movie, and I turned to her in the middle. And I said, "Who needs James Bond when you've got Ethan Hunt?" I knew if I followed her, you'd show up eventually. You okay? Yes, I never. I know you have your reasons. I know. You need to walk away. I can't do that. You weren't at the ballet to kill Mark. No. You were there to protect him. Yes. And you killed him to protect me. You wanted Mark to break Lane out. No, you needed him to break Lane out. Because you have to kill Lane. Who's making you do this? Right, because he's the new... You see Tom Cruise out there, and that's the that's the huge selling point. Like, more and more, he's the one doing those stunts. He's being Buster Keaton. Like, he's out there showing you that they're doing these death-defying things. So, obviously, I'm going to pick a, a Mission Impossible. And it's, it's funny that we go from True Lies to that, because I think that bridge scene that we talked about in True Lies... It's kind of copied for that bridge scene in Mission Impossible 3. Yeah. Like it, it has is. a lot of the same beats. It's interesting. It's got the jet. Yeah. Uh, helic- I think there's a helicopter. Anyway, so, but, you know, you, you see these franchises kind of feeding off each other. I think that's fascinating, too. True Lies, I think another story, too, is that GoldenEye had to change its action scenes because, I had to rewrite them because True Lies had a lot of the same action scenes. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, you're just looking at a lot of these things feeding off each other. But I think with the Mission Impossibles, they become... Like, you have the first Mission Impossible that was more of a... It's obviously a Hitchcock ripoff because it's Brian De Palma, and then they get silly with Mission Impossible 2. But now, I think with Ghost Protocol, that's when they kind of hit their stride of, oh, let's show Tom Cruise doing these insane stunts, and people will show up, watch, and see how he almost kills himself. But the Mission Impossible that really does it for me is is Rogue Nation from 2000. Oh, okay, cool. And it's the start of... Uh, Christopher McQuarrie right now is... is probably my hero like as far as movies go because you know him doing mission impossible him having a hand in top gun maverick he mcquarrie knows his stuff and tom cruise knows that he knows his stuff and they're a good match together i just think after you have a ghost protocol which is great um like it's brad bird so it's literally like a live action cartoon that's how insane those the stunts and the actions set pieces are but what I really like about Rogue Nation is instead of like, you know, you follow up Ghost Protocol and you're like, well, what can we do that's even greater? And I don't think they do that. I think they step back and Rogue Nation is more of just a straightforward, contained, little, tense uh, thriller, right? As a spy thriller, I think it's the most spy thrillery uh, since the first one. But then, and they even have the stunt with crews hanging off the side of that airplane, right? But mm-hmm. that gets taken care of in the first five minutes. <laughs> yeah, that's just to, to get your back. seat and your butt yeah, in the seats. That's the curtain raiser, right? And so it was, I was amazed what like this is what you're starting the movie with. Like, what else is the movie going to do? And I think the movie really focuses on plot. And that's when you get like Rebecca Ferguson, who I like to say is the best thing to happen in Mission Impossible since Tom Cruise. She's but great. You, 
yeah, you've got them in spy play. You've got obviously Jeremy Renner doing a good job. Uh, uh, Ving Rhames, Simon Pegg, everything. You have a really, really personal villain uh, with Sean Harris as uh, uh, Solomon Lane. I think that the um, the villains in the movies are kind of uh, kind of bland so far, except for number three. Yeah. Oh, never mind. Let me backtrack on that. Yeah, Philip Seymour Hoffman is next level, right? I mean, yeah. I think he's the. Yeah, he's he's got to be the best villain just for this, the fact that it's Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, in there. So I'm sorry, no respect to that. that that's great. But okay, so since Philip Seymour Hoffman, I think that the Solomon Lane has the most personal uh, kind of connection to Ethan Hunt. But yeah, I just love that this movie is so contained and it's uh, just it concentrates on story and it has that. Uh, the the bond between Ilsa and uh, Ethan kind of being uh, same uh, different sides of the same coin, that kind of thing. I think that the humor is really great. You know, you go from Cruz dying in that crazy underwater six minute hold your breath sequence to driving around in a car, but they don't um, uh, keep her Sutherland in twenty four. Right? I mean, they they do comment that you know you were just dead. Like, why are you driving around? And so they really hit a lot on that uh, that humor, and I like that the um, Alec Baldwin is great showing up in there i liked the whole thing at the end just how yeah if, if you haven't seen rogue i don't want to spoil that for a bit it's just it's so well done and it's so well structured and i'm just in awe of the storytelling and i think that has to do everything with uh christopher quarry um and uh, what he was able to do with that movie i was joking my with my wife about this because this is my favorite franchise of all time oh, mission good. impossible fallout is one of my favorite movies ever yeah i think it's impeccable and i told my wife i could just have five of these movies on my list it literally could be like mission impossible one three four five and six that could be my list of five it's made over 3.5 billion dollars as a franchise and it's one of the rare cases where every single movie aside from two which i don't think is as bad as some people make it out to be but it's by far the my least favorite in the series but since three They've gotten better and better yeah. and better and more exciting. And I just cannot wait for Dead Reckoning Part 1, which by the time this releases might be out. I'm, I may have seen it by by that time. Okay, well, it's a good tie-in, yeah. But I, yeah. I agree with you. Like, even, you know, you say Mission Impossible 2, the John Woo one. I mean, it's I say it's the worst one, but I still like quite a bit of that. As a crazy James Bond kind of riff. That's yeah, fun. Uh, I don't think it's... Yeah, I don't think it's any less bombastic than the Pierce Brosnan ones or the Roger Moore ones. I, you know, that's what you go for. But yeah, Mission Impossible is like they, like you said, they get better and better, so that you you're kind of crazy with anticipation for the kind of stuff you're going to see and experience. Uh, you know, the next time out. So yeah, I mean, we could have done. I could have decided, or we could have decided together to do just a James Bond episode or, or a Mission Impossible episode. Just rank those, right? But uh, I think that kind of limits like what spy things spy thrillers can do but uh yeah i don't know i just had to talk mission impossible and i'm glad that uh, you said that it's your favorite franchise because it's definitely worth talking about just just how their place in the pop culture lexicon right now is is just something else yeah i recently rewatched all of them my wife and i went through one through six and five was the one i was most looking forward to revisiting because i had only seen it once when it was in theaters so the thing that stuck out to me was like you said, not that plane sequence, but the underwater sequence. And then there's a parking garage fight at the end with this really inventive parking garage. And it's just so cool, but it's also so brutal at the same time. Grand finale for me, I don't think we're going to match up. I don't think we're (laughs) going to match up. I'm guessing 
that Matt Damon is going to be in your uh, your number one slot there. That might be a good guess. Yeah. Well, he's also in my number one slot. And this is for a film that might not come to your mind at first when you think about spy films, but my number one is 2006's The Departed. Ooh. Or uh, as they say in the movie, The Departed. Departed. <laughs> <laughs> nice bastard. Yeah, gotcha. You got a cop in my crew. No Wyatt ever. You understand? You don't know what this is like. I can get the rat. You just let me do it my way. There was a leak from the inside. Man, smoke him out. What are you waiting for? Honestly, do you want him to chop me up and feed me the poor? The Departed, a Martin Scorsese picture. I mean, what is a spy film? It doesn't have to be government spies. And this has two spies, one on each side of the law. This is a remake of a film called Infernal Affairs. And I actually, uh, so I started rewatching Infernal Affairs. It just got a Criterion Collection trilogy box set. So I got it for Christmas. I dove in and I watched Infernal Affairs and I really liked it, but it definitely feels dated. It feels Mm. like early 2000s filmmaking. And so afterwards, it's like, okay, I got to I got to rewatch The Departed and Man, I realized how much I love The Departed when I watched it recently. I like it more than the original. It's one of those remakes that I think improves on the formula. If you've never seen The Departed, the story follows these two young men. They're both in the police academy, Bill and, and Billy and Colin. And Billy is seemingly kicked out of the academy, but he's actually been identified as a very high potential undercover agent. So they make it look like he's kicked out and then he goes undercover and he infiltrates this gangster's criminal underworld named Frank Costello played just wonderfully by Jack Nicholson. (laughs) We also find out that Colin was planted in the police force by Frank. So now we've got spies on both sides of the law and as information is passed around and these scenarios happen, soon everybody knows that there's moles because the stuff that the police are trying isn't working and the stuff that Frank is trying isn't working. And uh, nobody knows who these moles are. So that's where the uh, where the spying comes into play. Great performances all around. Leonardo DiCaprio plays Billy. Matt Damon plays Colin in just a screen-chewing role when he starts... As the movie goes on, like third act, Matt Damon is really great. Jack Nicholson, Chew and Screen, Alec Baldwin's in there. Mark Wahlberg got nominated for Best Supporting Actor for his role in this. And he's he's really, really good in this. Yeah. And uh, Vera Farmiga also. Anthony Anderson, Martin Sheen, the list goes on and on. It's a Scorsese <laughs> movie, for Christ's sake. So you're going to have amazing people lining up to play. Won four Oscars, won Best Picture, got Marty his Best Director, uh, adapted screenplay, editing, and like I said, Wahlberg was nominated some people say that this is lesser Scorsese. I disagree. I think it's in my top three for Scorsese. I know that might surprise a lot of people, but like I said, I think this improved on the original in every single way. It's just a film jam-packed with profanity, violence, masculinity. And even if you've seen and loved the original and you've been avoiding this because you don't like remakes, there's some stuff in the third act that you're not going to see coming. And it's got tons of Boston accents, which I always love. Microprocesses. the departed is my number one spy film you know you it you're right it doesn't have to be cold war 
spy stuff, right? I mean, they're the Damon and the Caprica, they're literally spies with another faction. It's, it's all about the movie, them risking their lives, and it's the tense, the tenseness of the movie. Is, is there going? Are they going to be discovered? How are they going to get away with all this? How far are they going to go? Uh, how far will Damon and DiCaprio sink into their roles? That kind of thing. So yeah, it's definitely a spy movie. I don't have any problems there. It's, I think we kind of maybe get hung up on what the actual definition of that is. But this, holy shit, man! This is a movie. Like I remember watching this for the first time, going, "This feel it's so fun and it's so rich, not just with performances, but with the camera work, with the the plotting and everything." It's three hours that just goes by so fast. Um, Damon scenes with uh, Farmiga are just so charming, just the way they're able to play with each other. And you know, Damon's a, a charismatic. You know, when you just let him just be charming, I think that's I think that's great. Um, and then obviously Nicholson is just. Like it's another, you know, unearthly, otherworldly. He's so good in this. So, yeah, I know that some people do say it's it's Lester Scorsese, and I guess it's not quite as, you know, it's not saying as much as like Goodfellas or Taxi Driver, but it's like you go to a movie to see a movie, right? And this is a movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're going to remake something like Infernal Affairs, it needs to, it needs to bring something to the table, and he absolutely did. Yeah, yeah, so great. That's an awesome choice. Grand finale for you. <laughs> well, we're, we're kind of tying it in here because Rogue Nation has Alec Baldwin and then The Departed has Alec Baldwin and then my number one has Matt Damon in it. Yeah, again, we've mentioned it before. I think the, the Bourne movies are just... I, I think I wrote a... I had a blog once upon a time and I started off with a series of articles on like the best... Um, like a top 10, but I didn't, I organized it like I did different categories. So best top, best five action movies, top five dramas, comic book movies, that kind of thing. And the Bourne movies I combined as one movie because they kind of work as one story. Um, but you could choose any of those. You could choose Born and Denim from 2002. You can choose Born Ultimatum from 2004. You can choose, uh, uh, no, Born Supremacy from 2004. Or you could choose Born Ultimatum from 2007. And they're pretty much equal. But I think I'm going to go with the Born Identity as uh, my number one. Again, it's not so much, There's. I'm not saying that the Born Identity, like I said, is, is a better quality movie than North by Northwest. It's not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I'm just, if you're looking at this trajectory of, uh, trajectory of uh, you know, spy films from comedies to spoofs to full-on James Bond to, you know, more outlandish stunts. And what I loved about Identity and still love, when I when I saw it the first time in a the theater, I was kind of underwhelmed by it because I think that's when a lot of the, the comic book stuff was start, like X-Men was starting to come out and things like that. I think Spider-Man came out this summer. And so there's a lot of bombastic action. And The Born Identity is not that. Like, it's a Doug Liman movie. It's more, again, it's, it's even more than Rogue Nation which has crazy stunts, it's more self-contained, it's more honed, it's more like a bullet. I come in here, and the first thing I'm doing is I'm catching the sight lines and looking for an exit. I see the exit sign too, I'm not worried. I mean, you were shot. People do all kinds of weird and amazing stuff when they're scared. I can tell you the license plate numbers of all six cars outside. I can tell you that our waitress is left-handed and the guy sitting up at the counter weighs 215 pounds and knows how to handle himself. I know the best place to look for a gun is the cab of the gray truck outside. And at this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Now, why would I know that? 
like I said, I, was, I watched it in the theater. I wasn't impressed. But the more bombastic that these movies get, you go back and you watch The Born Identity, and it's like a breath of fresh air or a shot of adrenaline. It's like, this is so good how, how sparse it is. And it's not trying to impress you with everything. It's just it's just a good, solid spy thriller with some some really surprising action beats. I know we talked about Schwarzenegger, and just, just as a little bit of an aside, I know everybody, uh, Jason, you've obviously seen Total Recall, right? Oh, yeah, of course. And that starts off, you know, Schwarzenegger, you know, it turns out that he's a, a spy or whatever, or he's, a, you know, uh, works for a faction or he's in, in a war. And the scene where Schwarzenegger fights back against his cronies, it's it's not a surprise, right? Like, he's playing this lowly kind of, like, dock worker or whatever. And then these guys attack him, and he's able to take them all out. But it's, you know, it's Schwarzenegger. Like, why would that be a surprise at all, that he could take these guys out? And if you look into the history of Total Recall, I believe Matthew Broderick, of all people, was originally supposed to play <laughs> really? Doug Quaid. And you hear that and you laugh. Like, the first time I, I laugh. But then just imagine, like, Matthew Broderick, this little nebbish guy, being cornered by these four other dudes in an alleyway. And all of a sudden, he busts out these karate moves or kung fu, and he's able to kill everybody. Like, how surprising would that be? Right? Sure. And I think that's what the Born Identity does. Like, you don't expect Matt Damon to all of a sudden be an action star because, you know, he was in Goodwill Hunting and Rounders and, you know, Saving Private Ryan. So he was a good actor and kind of rising in the ranks of A list stars. But there's that scene where. You know, obviously they find uh, Born, he's got amnesia, they find him on that sh- that uh, fishing trawler, and they bring him on, they heal him, and they, they're they trying to get his memory back, and so they leave him uh, just on the shore, and he's kind of asleep on a park bench, and these two other cops kind of come up, and they uh, kind of accost him, right? And there's a scene where Damon, or as Born, he's able to grab one of the muzzles of the cop's guns, or, or, or the baton, or something like that, and just takes these two guys out in, like, just two swipes of his hand, right? And it's it's kind of a shock, because you don't expect Matt Damon, of all people, to do something like that. But this was the movie where he, you know, you look at Supremacy, you look at Ultimatum, and he is an action star. Like, he can pull off these scenes, like a Gina Carano, uh, or like a Sorcery Ronan, and that kind of, you know, he, they're able to do all these incredible stunts, um, but again, it's at the behest of this really cool story, and he gets, he, you know, he's involved in these clandestine operations, things like that. The climax <laughs> of the movie is just him talking to the Chris Cooper character and saying, "I don't want to do this anymore." And then he he gets attacked by three guys in a stairwell, and then it's over within thirty seconds, right? But it, it feels like, oh, that's a climax to a small scale movie. I just think that it's. Watching it today, it's incredible just seeing where movies have gone since then. But it's it's such a, yeah, like I said, it, it moves like a bullet. It's just this this little ball of energy, and I don't know. It's it, it rivals, like I said, I, I turned to my wife during one of the Mission Impossible and said, "Who needs James Bond?" It's the same thing with Jason Bourne. Who needs James Bond when you've got Ethan Hunt or Jason Bourne? One of the things I love about it is that he's so resourceful in the fight scenes. It's yeah. never like he's fully prepared for what he's going up against. So, and you'll have to remind me because it's been a long time since I've seen the movies and they all kind of blend together in my head. But isn't <laughs> right. Identity the one where he has like a pencil or a pen and he starts, pen. Like, sta- yeah, he starts stabbing the guy with it in his hand? Yeah, he's with the Franco Potente character and they're up in his kind of his loft and the guy comes in and attacks him. And they have this, again, incredible fight. And he, yeah, he sticks a pen in the guy's hand. <laughs> <laughs> to kind of disarm him. But yeah, definitely resourceful. He's like the MacGyver of action stars in here. I, I really like that a lot. And yeah, they, they get a lot of, of flack for being the shaky cam stuff. But the Greengrass-directed Bourne movies, I know a lot of people kind of get confused by him, but 
And when you watch the green grass stuff, yeah, it's it's shaky. And it's kind of giving you the feel of what it's actually like to be in a fight or be in a chase. I think that's what it does. But every he'll, it's not just pure chaos because you'll see stuff. The characters are in vehicles or they're dressed in a certain way that you can easily identify them. Or Green Grouse will do this thing where he'll he'll focus on zoom focus on somebody like pulling a lever or or you know turning a steering wheel to kind of reorient you to where you are during the action scene. So I still think they're incredible that way. I just think movies, even Quantum of Solace, you know, taking uh, the Bourne kind of aesthetic, it misunderstands the Jason Bourne aesthetic. You look at the first uh, car chase, the opening car chase in Quantum of Solace, and that is pure chaos and nonsense. You can't even tell what's happening because they don't have the skill that Greengrass and uh, Oliver Wood were able to bring to those uh, and again i know that people give it a lot of flack but watch them again and they they do make more sense in your head than you probably give them credit for and back then it wasn't commonplace for the shaky cam stuff the shaky cam stuff really uh started from i mean it didn't start from the Bourne movies but it definitely popularized them yeah until shit what was that tony scott movie domino yeah, it was oh, nearly unwatchable because of the shaky cam. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Got to that point. The only other things that I'll add for the Born series, because again, this I could have had one, two, and three on my list. We'll we'll pretend that the other two don't exist, right? We those those are the two. <laughs> what other two? Happened. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> yeah, why did I buy this Born 4K box set? And there's room for two more movies. Yeah. The only other things I'll add. This is another spy movie series that got turned into a TV show. Yeah. I have not seen the Bourne TV show. This has made a top five list in the past. Back in the very, very early days of Force 5, this made top five scores. I love the score by John Powell on this series. It's one of my favorite scores of all time. Yeah. And uh, there was a Bourne video game, a Jason Bourne video game that was very frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all can't be Goldeneye, right? <laughs> That's true. All right, Darren, we had 10 spy movies we did not cross over at all. <laughs> We're going to talk about some honorable mentions here in a second, but I think, I mean, I've seen everything on your list. I think that there are 10 amazing recommendations for spy movies. We've got all kinds of flavors for you. Whatever you're in the mood for, we got you covered. Let's go ahead and recap our lists for the listeners, and I will go ahead and start off. At number five, I had Haywire from 2011. At number four, I had Hannah, also from 2011. At number three, I had Hunt from 2022, South Korean film. At number two, I had the James Cameron film True Lies from 1994. And in my number one spot, I had Martin Scorsese's The Departed from 2006. Awesome list, Jason. Uh, What I have, number five, I've got Top Secret, the great uh, spy thriller spoof from 1994. I've got North by Northwest, uh, probably one of the top three uh, Hitchcock movies that everybody knows. That's from 1959. Uh, For my James Bond pick, I picked Skyfall from 2012. Uh, my Mission Impossible pick, I have Rogue Nation from 2015. And uh, from the as my number one, I've got Born Identity from 2002 uh, with Matt Damon as an action star. This could easily make a film festival, just the, the lineups that we have here. Now, of course, we have to deal with only having five spots on our list. I could have easily made a list of 20 of these. I have a couple of honorable mentions I want to discuss, but why don't we get yours first? What on your list uh, would have made the list if maybe it was like top 10? 
Well, like I said, you could have picked any. I had a, I was going to pick maybe from Russia with Love. I was going to maybe pick on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Those are kind of runners up. I could have gone with the obvious. I think Three Days of the Condor from 1975, which is oh yeah, great great movie. I could have picked that one, Sidney Pollock movie with Robert Redford, Faye Dunaway. Um, you could have. I think we talked beforehand. I could have chosen The Third Man as a spy movie. If you're going to have The Departed in there, I might as well have the The Third Man. Sure, but, that would uh, work. I'm I mostly just counted as a film noir. Um, I'll have that as my number one film noir, so I didn't want to kind of take it out of that genre. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, there are so many spy movies you could have chosen. Instead of going from the, uh, yeah, other Hitchcock movies, could have chosen Lady Vanishes, could have chosen Saboteur. Um, I could have chosen Austin Powers, like you talked about. I could have chosen, I guess, maybe John Wick kind of counts. I'm not There's sure There's some about spy that. elements to John Wick, yeah. I suppose. But what I, what I really love about our list here. Uh, Jason, is that, like you said, it's 10 movies that are just giving you, and I'm glad you didn't pick a board or a Mission Impossible or Bond, because that gives us more time to talk about other available movies that are out there, right? Um, so you can check out any of those we mentioned. Uh, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy from 2011 was great. I could have picked that, and that's about the how it ruins your spirit being a spy. You could have Marathon Man. Uh, Man from Uncle would have been fun to talk about from 2015. So I think... The thing with lists, and I, I think you've talked about this with other guests before, is this is more like a, a jumping off point, right? This is more of a conversation starter to open your mind or open your world to other uh, genre movies that we haven't talked about. So I think this is a, a great, solid 10. Lots of fun stuff in here. A couple that I had on my list that have not been mentioned by either one of us. So you had a Redford in your honorable mentions there, and he also did one with Tony Scott called Spy Game. Oh, that. Yeah. I really wish I could have had the time to rewatch because I remember really liking it, but right. I haven't seen it since it was in theaters. So didn't put that on my list. Um, the one that I, you know, if I hadn't just talked about it as one of my top five films of 1990, La Femme Nikita would have made mm-hmm. my list. Spielberg's Munich was on my short list. Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation oh. was on my short list. Yeah, And then Another foreign film that I I really think needs some attention is from 2001. It's a film called Cliff Walkers from Hong Kong. Interesting. This is a movie that takes place in the 1930s, but it's about four special agents who embark on a secret mission and each there's two they split into two teams of two and there's just some really cool imagery there. So, uh, Cliff Walkers. I, I think more people need to see this one. All right, so all kinds of spy movies to check out. We've also got a new podcast for you, possibly, to check out. If you have not heard of NostalgiaCast, go over to anywhere you get your podcasts, look up NostalgiaCast. What can people look forward to? Yeah, we've, uh, let's see, as of right now, we've got Face Off is the episode that we have out. Uh, we chatted with uh, critic Sarah M. Fetters. Great conversation with her. Um, at the end of the episode, we did mention that we are covering Goodfellas as our next episode. And so that'll be the next one we release. Nice. I think after that, we've only got a few more 90s stuff. And then we're taking a break uh, because we've just been going full force. And then we're going to come back and uh, just a little bit of a spoiler for all the uh, Force 5 listeners. Johnny wants to start doing some 1970s films. We got so addicted to the 90s stuff that it's like, well, why don't we talk about some of the more influential and iconic 70s stuff and see see it, how popular that gets us. Because the 90s has gotten us a lot of traffic. And so that's another reason we're having fun. We'll see what uh, 70s can do for us. But uh, yeah, we definitely want to talk about that. We'll come back and talk about 90s stuff. and Yeah, just... You know, we're having such a fun time just talking about these movies that meant something to us as kids. And so hopefully everybody kind of 
feels that excitement from our conversations. That's great. And you can find me at uh, on Twitter at DW Lundberg. That's the only place you can find me. And I've got my link tree there. We've got our YouTube channel. Uh, we have YouTube videos too. So yeah, find us there, follow us there and interact with us. We'd love to hear from you. You'll find all links to everything in the show notes. Again, I make it easy for you to support the guest. So one last question before people switch over, like what episode would you recommend if they're going to pick one? What would you recommend? Um, I would pick the Raising Arizona episode. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Go check out the Raising Arizona episode of the Nostalgia Cast. Darren, awesome topic, awesome list. I think I'm going to go watch a Bourne movie tonight. <laughs> As well, you should. There are a ton of great spy films out there. I am sure we missed some. Please make sure to let me and Darren know what we missed. You can find me at Force5Pod on Twitter, at Force5Podcast on Instagram and threads, and on the Cinematics Facebook page. Or again, good old-fashioned email, Force5Podcast at gmail.com. Links to everything NostalgiaCast and Force 5 are in the show notes. And if you feel like helping me out, please just tell everybody you know any way you can about the Force 5 podcast. That's the best way that you can support me. Just get the name of the show out there. The Force 5 theme song comes courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some awesome spy films. <laughs>